And so the goal of this message is that the, the mystery of godliness for us is something that we should look and take and compare with the, the law of Moses in the Old Testament, juxtaposed to the grace brought to us by the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. We want to kind of compare and contrast how people attain godliness under the old system of the law, under the Mosaic, the Ten Commandments, and how we attain godliness today under the New Testament in the grace we find in Christ alone. You see, mere external religion without true godliness is like having a hamburger that appears to be well done on the outside. But what you don't know is the cook only cooked it on high intense heat for 30 seconds on each side. And so when you take a bite into it, it's completely raw in the middle. Now, I like that kind of thing, but I know most people don't. We call that in industry standards in the restaurant business, black and blue. Black on the outside and blue in the middle. But if you ordered your hamburger, even medium or well done, you're going to be very, very, uh, you're going to be very, very upset when you, when you see that. You know, it looks and appears ready to eat, but it's completely undercooked. You see, God's goal for his people is to pursue righteousness. We define righteousness as a lifestyle last time as that which is consistent with the character of Jesus Christ. It's the very opposite of worldliness, which is literally a lifestyle that is inconsistent with the character of God. And we're told in the word of God to not be conformed to this world. Now, you can't, you know, you don't just try to go outside of this world, but at the same time, James reminds us that to be friends with the world is to be at enmity with God. And I know that word enmity, we don't use it a lot anymore, but that's plain old Webster's 1883 dictionary definition. It just means to be the enemy of. And I know a lot of Christians can't get their head around that. How, so how, you love this world. God made this world. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. No, 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 no. That doesn't mean that. All right? I'm, 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 I'm a huge advocate of, you know, Christians being the best ecologist on the planet. God made this world. The anthropic principle states that this world has been created just for human life. There's nothing like planet Earth. In all of the cosmos, there's nothing like this planet. This little blue marble floating in space has been beautifully, wonderfully, and fearfully created for us to live ready and not just survive, but to thrive upon. What I'm saying is don't be in love with the things, the culture, all the depravity of this world. And we're going to tell you right now, there's a lot of depravity out there. So Paul told Timothy to teach the people how believers are to conduct themselves as a part of the household, or if you would, the family of God. Paul also said that he wanted Timothy to explain the mystery of godliness, which was a doctrine that everyone should agree with because it is the truth of Almighty God. Now, this truth is common, meaning that it belongs to every single Christian on this planet. It's something that we all have together. Paul also mentions that this mystery is great. Great is the mystery, which lets us know that it's not something minor, something inconsequential, something that is of a lesser degree or is unimportant. 
It's a, it's, this is a major New Testament doctrine. All right? Now, in our Bible, I know where everyone can get a little bit confused here because you hear the word mystery and everyone thinks of like an Agatha Christie whodunit. You know, this isn't like the movie Clue. It was Colonel Mustard with the candlestick in the observatory. That's, that's semantic range of meaning. Mystery can mean several different things. In the Greek, the word mysturion, from which we directly transliterate from the Greek into the English as a mystery, is something that is concealed in the Old Testament dispensation, and then in Christ Jesus, it's revealed in the New and further, and further explained to you. So when you hear the word mystery in your New Testaments, know that this is something that perhaps Old Testament saints wouldn't have fully grasped, right? They, could have, they would have believed it by faith, and they would have went, That's, I, we believe because God said, but I don't completely and absolutely understand. Now, in the New Testament, because of the Holy Spirit coming to indwell us, we have revelatory knowledge. The Spirit will reveal to us things that the rest of the world will look at and say, well, that's foolishness, and the Christian will go, well, you can believe that if you want, but the Holy Spirit has illuminated not only my darkened heart, but my mind as well. And we have, in Christ, things are now stretched out. So Paul says that there is a mystery about godliness that, again, was somehow unclear to the Old Testament saints, but now, by way of revelation, now it's clear to New Testament believers. And this is the case with many truths that are revealed only in the New Testament, because in the Old Testament, we didn't get the whole entire story. The Old Testament is the critical foundation of our faith. Let's not make a massive mistake here right now like some current Bible teachers have. Throw out the Old Testament, let's just get to Jesus. That's a ridiculous statement. You can't get to Jesus unless you have messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. So we cannot throw out the Old Testament because, in case we didn't know this, it's 77.9% of our Bibles. Could you imagine throwing out 77.9% of the food in your refrigerator when you went home from church today? I'll ask you this simple question. What would you eat for the rest of the week? You don't want to throw out something that is statistically more than three-quarters of God's word. I would call that a bad idea. That's a bad idea, okay? Now, we, we see this because the Bible was not written in one book. This is, this is how we unravel the mystery of godliness, the whole progressive revelation, the story of redemption. It's The Bible is 66 books comprised into one volume, so we're walking around with a library. That's the truth of the matter. Every time we open this book, this is, this is a volume, and that's how the Hebrews refer to it. The volume of the book speaks of you, O God. This is a volume. It's a library. 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, written by at least 40 different authors and a bare minimum of, of about over 1,500 years. And it's got one theme. And we can see the Lord Jesus Christ on every single page. So, this mystery of godliness that was a shadow in the Old Testament has now come to full light in the New when Jesus came as God in the flesh, the incarnational ministry of Jesus. That is where the Lord Jesus forever wed his deity to humanity in the person of Jesus. That's why he's fully God and fully man. And you ready? That's a mystery. Everyone needed to know that. Not every Old Testament prophet, even 
prophesying of his coming probably fully knew what they were even talking about. Now, now we know because it's really been, un, you know, it's been unfolded for us. But listen, in order to understand this mystery, you have to understand that a shift occurred when God moved from the Old Testament to the New Testament. If you don't understand the shift, you won't understand the mystery, not even one little bit. In Hebrews 8.13, we read that when God introduced his new covenant of grace in Christ Jesus, he made the old covenant, and this makes a lot of people very nervous, but I'm going to say it anyway because you can open your Bible and you can see it too. It says that he made the old covenant obsolete. Absolutely what it says. The law of Moses is an obsolete, now dysfunct covenant, for it has been replaced, as Jeremiah 31, 31 records for us, as the new covenant. Or in Hebrew, you could even say renewed covenant. The word is the same in Hebrew, for new or renewed, which means that God would have changed something in that. Now, in all honesty, the blood of bulls and goats, they don't take away the sins of mankind. Because everything in the Old Testament in Hebrew was called a kephar, and that means temporary structured covering. Uh, it's just, it doesn't last. You ever think why the Hebrew priests had to work so many weeks at a time and then get a long break and then come back and do another couple weeks of work and then go take off a couple months and come back by, by allotment? It's because people in Israel didn't stop sinning. They didn't stop sinning. That's why when you look at all the Articles of the temple, you know what's conspicuously missing? Chairs. You're all sitting in them right now. And when you sit in a chair, it gives you support and rest. The priests couldn't rest. They were always too busy making sacrifices for the sins of Israel, the sins of the people. But it's the Lord Jesus. And here's our turn again. You get the turns in scripture that really give you the aha moments. When Jesus ascended back to the right hand of the Father, what did he do? He sat down where he ever lives to make intercession for his saints. You see, Jesus can sit down because guess what? All sin has been paid for. The efficacious blood of Christ has covered all. It's it's covered all. This means if you're living in the Old Testament and trying to please God by what you do and don't do, then you're living under something that was made obsolete because something far better has come along. And that's why I tell Christian, I tell people, Christianity is not a system of do's and don'ts. Do this, don't do that, don't do this, do this, do this, don't do that. It's like Santa Claus theology. What do you think? Jesus is making a list and checking it twice? Um, I don't know. Let's see five naughties and only three nices. It's that the blood of Jesus erases all that quite non-offensively as I can be, mechanical theory. If your Christianity is mechanical and rote, then what kind, of, what kind of relationship is that? I mean, could you imagine that kind of relationship? That would be like doing the same thing every single day when you came home from work. Hello, dear. Hello, dear. How was work today? It was very stressful, but I'm glad to see you. I made your favorite dinner. Oh, that is wonderful. Again, no, I'm not mocking anybody. I'm just saying no one has a relationship like that. You say, Dr. J, you just described the relationship of no one ever. 
You're welcome. I, I, I make ridiculous sermon applications so they stick in your minds forever. Yeah, that's... What, name any relationship you've ever thought of. Mother to daughter, son to father. The relationship of lovers within the covenant grace of marriage. Friendships. Don't all of them have amazing dynamics? Highs and lows, ups and downs, periods of growth? Well, that's, that's what a relationship is. That's what a relationship is. God the Father has heard more of my complaints than any single friend on the planet that I have. And he's the one who goes, that's okay. I know who you are. You can complain a lot. Some people call it prayer. Sometimes I think it's God listening to our complainings. And he's happy to put up with them. So I have just three simple points I want to make in our remaining 15 minutes. Jesus Christ, number one for note takers, Jesus Christ is the embodiment of grace. When Jesus appeared, grace appeared. John 1.17 says, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were revealed through Jesus Christ. It's not that grace didn't exist in the Old Testament, because that's a terrible theory. But when Jesus came, he revealed God's grace to all men. That's what Titus 2.11 says. Now, since the grace of God has appeared to all men and women, we're no longer under the Mosaic law, which is very specifically just for the people of Israel. According to Romans 6.14, the law could never save anybody. You know what the law can reveal to you? Man, you're a wicked sinner. Now bring another sacrifice. And you bring it, you go home, and you go, whew. But on the way home, you get in a knockdown, drag it out, vicious argument with your spouse so that you can, you can go back and make another sacrifice. You wicked-hearted sinner, you. That's, that's what the law will always show you. It'll show you all your deficiencies. It'll show you that you're graceless. Sometimes it'll show you that you're faithless. And so the law it turns out, is a fantastic tutor until Messiah comes. And that's all the law does. The law shows you, man, you're in need of something so much greater than what you currently have. You see, what we needed is what God the Father in his sovereignty gave us, a sinless Savior who came in the person of Christ Jesus Romans 5, 12 through 14 says, Therefore, just as sin entered into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those sinning, was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who is to come. You see, here's this amazing, this amazing theme that we don't get. <clears throat> Just as Adam brought sin and death into the world, Jesus Christ by Paul is called the last Adam. Now you think, why, why is Jesus called the last Adam? Well, watch. Just as Adam's transgression and Adam's rebellion against God made every single one of us sinners, because you know if you go through Genesis, you're going to get this amazing principle. Like begets like. Horses give birth to horses. 
Crazy theory. Sheep give birth to sheep. Goats give birth to goats. Dogs and cats give birth to puppies and kittens. And two sinners confirmed in sin give birth to a race of sinners. And that's just how that works. We have the inherited sin nature of our great progenitors, Adam and Eve. So Adam's one act, and we're like, wow, one act. Adam's one act, follow me. Adam's one act of rebellion plunged humanity into sin and shame. And Jesus Christ's one act of crucifixion made salvation a possibility for all who will believe. And that's why Jesus is the last Adam. And so point number one is Jesus is the absolute physical embodiment of God's grace. Point number two, the uniqueness of Jesus Christ is the mystery of godliness. I'll repeat, the uniqueness of Jesus Christ is the mystery of godliness that Paul is talking about here. You see, true godliness is no longer found in a written code like the Mosaic Law. Godliness is forever linked to the person of Jesus Christ. You see, the mystery of godliness is Christ indwelling you. That's a part of the mystery. Since godliness is linked to the Lord Jesus Christ, our assignment is to become more like him. And this is all part of that relationship that I talked about. The relationship we talk about here on earth is called discipleship. A a disciple is, in basic terms, a disciplined learner. Mothetes, that's actually what it means in Greek. Disciplined learner. There were two sisters, one who was busy with the hustle and bustle of making food and amenities for everyone and making sure the house was real, real, real nice, right? Yeah. Motha. Martha, Martha, you're troubled about a great many things. What did Mary do? She lay at the feet of Jesus and heard all of his words, and his words were spirit and truth and life. And Martha has the audacity to say, Lord, do you not care that my sister, she's probably thinking in her wicked heart, this lazy little sister of mine laying down, listening to the rabbi, oy vey. It doesn't matter that she didn't say it, because let me tell you something. You go read her words. I'm thinking she felt it. Sin starts up here, and then it comes out of this thing called our mouth. All right? It starts in the head first, comes down to the heart, and then eventually comes out of the mouth. This is exactly how things work. And Jesus said to her again, Martha, Martha, you are greatly troubled about many things. Your sister has chosen the better thing that will not be taken away from her. See, that's that's precious. You see, the job of the Holy Spirit is to make the indwelling presence of Jesus Christ expand within us so that we become more and more like Jesus. In short, part of our discipleship is to become more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Now, How is it possible? It's possible because in 1 Peter chapter 1, 15 and 6, verses 15 and 16, Peter repeats something that is actually from the Torah. And he says, be holy because he is holy. And, And we're thinking, no, there's no way. None of us can be holy like God. That's true. Because part of God's 
holiness is his holy other nature. No one has a nature like God. We'll never have a nature like God. When we're fully glorified in heaven, we'll never have a nature like God because God is God and we are not. We've been created in his image and it doesn't work the other way around. Which means I always tell people, humanity created in the image of God means we're a little bit like him, but he's nothing at all like us. So try to, try to get that in your orthodoxy because it's a good statement. But because God has created humanity in his own image, that means something is true that I think a lot of theologians, and I, I don't mean to speak snarky of my brothers and sisters, but I think a lot of theologians in all of their rigor and study have probably missed one good thing. God is radically pro-human more than anyone can even fathom. Radically pro-human. How radically pro-human is he? He joined his own divinity to humanity in Christ and then goes and dies for humanity. Ready? Sounds pretty radically pro-human to me. Number three, last but certainly not least, God made a covenant with us in Jesus Christ. As we saw above, this new covenant of grace makes the old covenant obsolete, ready to fade away. You see, the mystery of the new covenant is that we are rightly related to God by grace alone and not by any works that any man, woman, or child could muster. This is in stark contrast to the strict performance-based dead religions of the world around us who always say do. Do this, do that, do, 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 and ready? When you think you've done, you are not done, you should do some more just in case. And I tell people, that is works-based salvation. And Christianity is the only grace-based salvation on the planet. On the planet. Because you know what Christianity says? Done. Because Jesus went to the cross. Believe. And I tell people, if believing is a work, then the world just got very strange. You offer any five-year-old on the planet a beautifully wrapped Christmas present, and not a one of them goes, nah, I'm good. They go, here, this is for you. And they go, oh, thank you. And I said, is receiving a work? No, it's not. And when the, when the gospel is offered to people, that's the truth. Here is the most precious gift on the planet. You, th- you either want it or you don't. Romans 5, verses 15 and 17 But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, Death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteous reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Again, to sum up the Old Testament in just a couple words, do, do, do. To sum up the grace of the New Testament, done. In Christ Jesus, period. End of the sentence. Jesus 
is alone in his uniqueness. Therefore, he alone is qualified to be our Savior. And when Jesus appears, it is God Almighty in the flesh who appeared. Titus 2, 11 through 14 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying godliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Now, we are not to frustrate the amazing grace of God Almighty by going back to dead works. We've been created in Christ Jesus for good works, but don't return to dead works. No one's going to be made righteous by the Mosaic law. It It doesn't make one righteous. That law was just a temporary system set up until the greater had come. Galatians 2, 19 through 22 says, For I thought the law had died to me. Through the law, the, the, the law died to me that I might live in Christ. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is not, no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ Jesus died in vain. And we know Jesus did not die in vain. You see, our calling is to grow in this amazing grace. 2 Peter 3, 14 through 18 says, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, And consider that the long-suffering of the Lord Jesus is salvation, as also our beloved Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all of his epistles, speaking of them in these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also with the rest of the scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, Since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but rather grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. See, Peter here is saying some things that Paul, Paul has written, because, you know, Paul gives us 13 epistles. You know, Peter gave us two, John gave us five. Paul gives us 13. And he's saying some of those hard salvific issues, talking about salvation and talking about predestination and talking about election, Paul is saying some people not understanding the complexity and the nature in which Paul wrote have twisted those things and they're just wrong. And they're just twisting them to their own advantage. And that's the nature of every pseudo-Christian cult that's ever come out. Take one or two key Christian doctrines and just spin them around. And usually a couple of them are, Jesus isn't God. And I tell you, if Jesus isn't God, then everyone sitting in this room is still in their sins. That's, that's, that's one horrific thing. 
And the other one is, watch out for it, is a de-emphasis upon God's grace, that it's sufficient. In all the cults, you have to do something. You're doing, you're always doing. How do you think they keep people involved in cult activity? In Jehovah's Witnesses, if you don't go out and do field service and go door to door, you're not a Jehovah's Witness. The Mormons do the exact same thing as even do the Muslims too. You have to go and do all these things and you have to keep the five pillars of Islam and if you don't do these things, you're not saved. And it's all about works. And it's not about grace. You see, as I close out this morning, many, many years ago, our ancestors used to take their clothing down to a river and scrub them on a rock. Didn't they? Right? And then, and then something amazing happened. They, some genius human being said, you know, we should make a washboard so that you actually don't have to scrub, you know, your clothing on moss-covered rocks anymore because in the process of making them clean, you could also make them more dirty. But what's the whole idea behind the washboard? You know what it is? got to scrub really hard to get the filthiest of stains out. It's all about rolling up your sleeves and applying some elbow grease, scrubbing hard to clean things that are very, very dirty. Then came, with the Industrial Revolution, this amazing invention called a washing machine. Isn't that special? You know, they have the same goal as the washboard, but something is different because now there's new power at work to make cleaning something filthy ever so effortless. You open the washing machine, you put in your dirty clothes, you put in a scoop of powder or a little cup of liquid, and the washing machine scrubs for you. Where's your elbow grease? You don't need elbow grease anymore, okay? The Old Testament is very much like the washboard. There's elbow grease, there's sweat, there's intensity, and you've got to scrub very, very hard to attempt to make something very clean. You know, it was the people trying to clean up their own mess by their own efforts sometimes. The new covenant is just like a washing machine. It does the exact same thing, but there's a new power that is absolutely apart from any human being's effort. You do nothing on the washing machine. You do not get into the washing machine and agitate. You don't do any of those things. You just put the clothing in, a little bit of detergent, and you hit a button. If it's really gnarly, you hit that extra soil button. And the machine does that work. That machine is a lot like the grace of God. That's what it's like. It's not rolling up your sleeves and attempting to work those things out. It's allowing exactly what Zechariah said. It's not by might and it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. Can we pray real quick? Father God, we thank you, O Lord, that there is no God like you. The God who is able and willing to forgive us of all the things that we have done. Bless your name. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen.